0: 2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we would love to have you pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288. EWTN. That's 833 288 ewtn if you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. 271 2985 And um, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline, at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky, and Ace McKay is our celebrity social media maven today. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us. By the end of the program, and our host, as he is every Monday, the one, the only Father John Trigilio. How in the world are you?
2: <laughs> Having a little computer difficulties today, but we're straightened out.
1: Father John, in the nick of time. That's what they. Uh, <laughs> that's what they. That's what they say about you. Uh, Once again, as I wait for Mr. Michael McCall to complete his show transition, I'll give you those phone numbers one more time, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Got some emails here, Father, on this July 3rd, um, the day before Independence Day. What were you doing on the the night before the... uh, Declaration of Independence was submitted. Do you remember?
2: <laughs> I was at <just> Bono <laughs>
1: Um Doreen writes in from Pennsylvania, I have a couple questions regarding reconciliation. Mm-hmm. I was listening to Mass from St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. They did not do the penitential act. I was wondering why. Also, reconciliation being as important as it is, why do so many parishes only offer it once a week for like 45 (laughs) minutes or so prior Mm to mass? I feel you, Doreen. Finally, why the movement away from old confessionals toward face-to-face confessions, which seems to deter some from going?
2: Uh, Well, (laughs) let's start with the easy one first.
1: I want to meet Doreen Uh, first of all. (laughs) So do i <laughs> um
2: the penitential rite at mass uh, is not the sacrament part uh, of the sacred liturgy so priests are not allowed to just omit it now there's a few rare occasions where it's omitted by the general instruction of the roman missal for, exa- for example like on ash wednesday but normally speaking uh the penitential rite which is either the confidior followed by the kyrie. Or there's what they call tropes, um, phrases that the deacon or the priest can say uh, that take the place of the confiter. But the penitential rite uh, is to be done in the same way that um, during ordinary time uh, the Gloria and the Creed should be done on every Sunday. But even though uh, it is done, it is not the sacrament of uh, penance and reconciliation. Now, with the timing of that, um, I, I hear you um, you know, people want to be able to go to confession, and uh, they had a wonderful program once in Hartford, the archdiocese of Hartford, where the archbishop asked every priest in the diocese to make confessions available from like five to seven p.m. on a Tuesday night uh, across the archdiocese, because there's a lot of people who just can't go on Saturday afternoon, and it was a tremendous success. Um, you know, I, so I w- would like to. You know, see that happen in, in more dioceses where the bishop would ask, uh, maybe not every single week, but in certainly in Advent and Lent, and then maybe in the summertime, uh, a diocesan-wide invitation. Um, now, part of the problem is, as parish priests, we're not just hearing confessions. We're also going to the hospital. We're anointing the sick. We're burying the dead. Uh, we're getting people ready for marriages. Uh, preparing them for baptism, uh, teaching the faith and catechesis, and then all the other mundane um, administrative uh, stewardship projects of keeping the buildings uh, running. So it's not that people, I don't want people to think the priest is just sitting there doing nothing.
1: So you're not just Uh, playing bocce ball and drinking limoncello.
2: (laughs) No, no. (laughs) And I know some of my brother priests, you can get discouraged If on Saturday afternoon when you're in there you feel like the Maytag repairman, you're not getting a large, uh, you know, retinue of of people coming in. But as it's pointed out, not everybody has Saturday afternoon conveniently off, and so there's where, as a parish priest, you know, we have to make an effort to make it available during the week, and not just, I, I don't like when priests say, appointment only. Uh, you know, uh, this isn't going to a Swiss bank and <laughs> you're checking out you know, your bank deposit box. Um, but I would say, if a couple people would ask the pastor, Father, could you at least try uh, to have confessions one day during the week? Um, optimally, if you have enough priests, uh, it's nice to have confessions before and or after Mass on weekdays as well as on uh, Sundays. I, I was in a parish in, in Harrisburg Diocese holy name of Jesus. And we had confessions before every single Mass, because we had three or four priests, and we had it Saturday night, and we had it on Wednesday evenings uh, at seven o'clock. So uh, it, it can be done. And thirdly, I like the confessionals myself, because um, you know, one, you have the protection of having the grill, and so that nobody could ever say anything inappropriate was going on in there. Secondly, uh, the anonymity is is wonderfully protected. And, uh, you know, during time of COVID, you know, you, you're keeping a safe distance. And, you know, they're making these um, screens with um, antimicrobial <laughs> material uh, to prevent any type of contagion in that. Um, I remember when the first reconciliation rooms came out, everybody loved them in the beginning because it was the novelty. Problem is people go in there and they, they act like it's psychoanalyzing. Uh, Hi, Father. How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. Look, this is like the ER, the trauma center. You need to go in there, tell them your sins, get absolved. It's not spiritual direction. That's something separate.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines for you on this open line Monday. So, Father, continue this just a, a, a step further. You're someone who between your, your seminary assignments and your various parish assignments, and uh, y- you have a unique and varied perspective on administration at various levels. And the one thing that always, and, and, and your point is well made about the, the taxes that are placed on the schedules of our priests, um, but, but one of the things that, that has always frustrated me on a certain level is to see you know a, a parish of three or 4,000 families with a sanctuary that seats 750 people and on a holy day of obligation we'll have one mass
2: mm. yeah and that's that's that is a a, a sad uh, commentary and i know as as pastors you know i was a pastor for uh, 16 years in the same two parishes. uh i i love the people i love the the parishes and the happiest uh time my priest was was being a, a pastor but you have the, the uh, logistics involved where, you know, my churches fit 100 people and we had to have two Saturday night Masses, two Sunday night Masses. I've been to parishes where the parish the building was so large you, know, you didn't need to have a lot of Masses. Then I've been to other parishes where you needed to have several Masses because the Church could not accommodate everybody. And you don't want people to get discouraged because they show up for mass and there's no room. Uh, Obviously expect that at Christmas and Easter, but on a regular Sunday, you want enough parking space, you want enough pew space that people are not gonna be turned away. Um, And I know when they're readjusting parish boundaries and sometimes they're merging parishes, uh, there's a lot of logistical things that go into the mix. But uh, yes, I think some things that need to be looked at at a diocesan and parish level are how many masses are being celebrated How many people are attending those Masses?
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Trevor writes in, Why is it that the Catholic Church claims the Bible to be a Catholic book when it wasn't dogmatically (laughs) declared to be the canon that it is until the Council of Trent?
2: (laughs) Well... (laughs) You know, Trent defined it once and for all, but that doesn't mean uh, for 1,500 years there was ambiguity. Um, Sorry, Father, I, I,
1: I can't. I can't seem to look at my watch today, and I put you. I painted <laughs> you into a time corner. We'll get to oh. that one in just a second, and we want your phone calls. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. It's open line Monday with Father John Tragilio. Got a great item at uh, EWTN's Religious Catalog, the St. Francis Bird Feeder. Recall the popular story of St. Francis preaching to the birds with this beautiful outdoor bird feeder. St. Francis is shown with a young deer at his feet and two birds at the rest of his left shoulder and arm. And in one hand he cradles a little flower pot and the other is raised as if he is speaking directly to them. The feeder is 12 inches tall and is designed either for hanging or To stand on a flat surface. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. But standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code free at checkout. So, Father, this business about how can the Catholics say that the Bible is a Catholic book when it didn't get uh, established until the Council of Trent?
2: Yes. uh, Actually, I mean, Trent did define solemnly uh, the the amount of books and what they were uh, for the canon of scripture, the, so the 27 books of the New Testament and the 46 books of the uh, Old Testament. But it was as early as 382 A.D. the Council of Rome, which was convened under Pope Damasus, that you know first recognized uh, the the um, the canon of scripture, and then it was reaffirmed later uh, regional councils: Council of Hippo in 393, Carthage in 397. And then uh, the Ecumenical Council of Florence in 1442. So by the time Martin Luther gets on the scene in 1517, it's been well established, you know, that these are the books of Scripture. And you know, prior to 382, remember the church is underground; it's illegal. It wasn't until Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. when Constantine uh, legalized Christianity. Uh, so there was no way for them to sit down and have a council and iron out. Uh, what are the particular books? But it was already established the Christian community as early as the first century, at the time of Jesus. Uh, the the books, what we call the deuterocanonical books, uh, that are sometimes listed in the Protestant Bible as uh, apocrypha, these were considered canonical at the time of Christ uh, by Jews and by Christians. And it wasn't until Council of Jamnia in in uh, you know 100 A.D. that uh, the Jewish community you know, throughout those seven books, by that time Christianity had already existed and was on its own, independent, and uh, accepted those uh, those seven extra books that are, were accused of of creating. Actually, they were always there. Uh, Martin Luther threw them out. It wasn't that we added them; it was that he took them out.
1: Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. First up today is Jerry, a first-time caller in Houston, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jerry, you are on with Father John Tregilio.
3: Hi, Father. Hi. Hi, I was wondering uh, what do you think about the passage in the New Testament where Jesus is telling Mary of Magdalene, don't hold on to me, I haven't yet ascended to the Father, and I've heard some um, people discuss this as, you know, physically, don't hold on to me, like she was hugging him and clinging to him or something. But I was thinking more in terms of spiritual longing and the grief that she had and, the you know, her mind was fixated on him. Could she, Could his, Jesus have been referring to that? Don't hold on to me, as opposed to the physical state. Um, and I say that because I, I think I felt that way after my son passed away. You know that I was clinging to him. Uh, you know I didn't want him to be gone.
2: Yes, um, I, I think you touched on a good point here. Um, when Jesus says, "Do not cling to me," and in, in Latin it's "Nole me tangere." Um, it's this idea not just the physical but of of mary Magdalene being stuck or the possibility of being stuck into the way things were before uh, the resurrection and remember when he raises lazarus from the dead uh, the wonderful things he says as lazarus is coming out of the tomb he says untie him and let him go and i often use that at at funeral masses to say yes uh, we have to let our loved ones go because we want him to go home to the Lord. We want him to go to the place that we were created for. And uh, so part of the reality of death is that death for the Christian is a doorway into everlasting life. Yes, we're going to be sad. Jesus wept at the death of, of his friend Lazarus. Mary wept at the foot of the cross on Calvary as Jesus died. And yet when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she recognizes Jesus when he calls her by name, uh, mary and she says rabboni rabbi then uh, the, the, the uh, do not touch me or do not cling to me is don't hold on to the way things were you know there's a new reality he's risen from the dead and he's on his way to ascend into heaven uh... forty days after easter so it, it's not that um, I remember, one of the kids when once in ccd said what the, the, did she think he had cooties i said no <laughs> it has nothing to do with that uh, it's not, you know, it's not like she was impure or, or that she would be the any way that be a Jewish defilement, ritual impurity, anything like that. But it was this idea, like you mentioned, it's in our heart. We have to let go and be open to the new reality.
1: Thanks, Jerry. We appreciate the call today. I hope you have a great Fourth of July. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six um julie writes in and says jesus calls mary woman and people say it's because she is the new eve why then does jesus call other women woman
2: (laughs) well uh first of all they are women so that's a biological fact that some people are still grip grappling with these days but You know, it's a fact, okay? So there's the biological reality that they're women, but also um, the word woman. Uh, In English, it does not have the same uh, impact uh, as it does in the the ancient languages Um, because, as I mentioned many times, when I go down to Alabama to to do things for EWTN, um, I always am impressed by how respectful and tender is the relationship between parents and their children, and yet in the South... It's not considered strange or unusual for a son or daughter to say to their mom or dad, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Uh, Northerners, we look at that and say, oh my goodness, that's so formal. That so sounds so you know, uh, out of the ordinary. But that is a sign of respect, and it's a sign of love. And so Jesus referring to Mary as a woman, okay, the gunai uh, or mulier um, in Latin, uh, it's a sign of respect, and it's also affirmation that Mary is the woman who's uh, prophesied in Genesis chapter three, when uh, God uh, condemns the serpent. He says, "I'll put enmity between you and the woman," and Mary is the woman uh, who, at the wedding feast of Cana. Uh, asked Jesus to to do something and turn the water into wine. She's the woman at the foot of the cross when he says, woman, behold your son. And she's the woman in the book of Revelation or the apocalypse. Uh, And there appeared in the sky a great sign, the woman clothed with the sun uh, on her head, a crown of 12 stars and the moon beneath her feet. So that affirmation of all that all bases it on that phrase woman. And uh, it's more than just one layer. It's sort of like an onion. Many layers to it, but when you look at the totality, uh, it's not uh, an insult. You know, some people say, oh, Jesus was dissing his mother by calling her woman. No, <laughs> he was affirming that she is the woman of Genesis and, and Revelation 12, and she's also very dear to him.
1: Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Well, we have a very novel question from Donald. I don't know if you've (laughs) pondered this one before, Father. Why is it okay to call a priest Father? Jesus says in Matthew not to call anyone on earth Father.
2: Okay, well, let's take that uh, literally then. If, if we're going to interpret that literally, call no man father, call no one father, that would not only apply literally to all priests, it would also apply to our dads. And when you fill out a form, uh, if, you had, if you take this literally, you would not be able to fill in that little box that says father, because you say, I can't call anyone father. So uh, obviously we, we, ha- we use the word, uh, we call George Washington the father of our nation. Um, the word father it's not the issue. It's the relationship. And when Jesus says, call no one father, it's no more literal than when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. We don't take that uh, literally. Or when your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. Or when he says, you must hate your mother or hate your father. It's always context. Um, father Levis used to always say on our show, Web of Faith, when you take a text out of context, you have a pretext. So we have to interpret the, the phrase um, faithfully not just literally. And so in the time of Jesus, you had these rabbis who also went by the title Father, and they had a uh, sort of a, a clout. They had uh, an aura of mystique about them, and people would follow them just because of their notoriety. Uh, that's what he's referring to. But uh, the spiritual fatherhood that uh, I as a priest have, uh, it's not because of me. It's because I'm ordained uh, as an Altar Christus, Uh, I act in the person of Christ, in persona Christi. Uh, When I baptize any uh, person, I have a spiritual relationship with them. And so even St. Paul uh, uses this context of father. He sees someone as his son. Well, if you have a son and you're a man, guess what? (laughs) You're a father. So it's not the title itself, it's the context of the title.
1: Uh, Victor is in Kennewick, Washington, listening on KHSS Radio. Victor, you're on with Father Trujillo.
3: Hello, Father. Thank you for taking the call. Um, I would I would like to know how are bishops elected? How do they get chosen from a multitude of different priests?
2: Okay, that's a uh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, seriously. Um, Deep breath, it's not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it, it is mysterious, you know. <laughs> uh, it's not as mysterious as uh, uh, other mysteries of the universe. Um, it's not by election. Now, at some time uh, in Church history, we had periods where uh, people by acclamation, you know, said, oh, we want this guy to be our bishop. But uh, the process that exists now is that, for instance, in my diocese of Harrisburg, uh, our bishop Ronald Gainer recently retired, and then we got a new bishop. Timothy Senior was auxiliary bishop from Philadelphia. Now, bishops every five years are asked by Rome to submit names of potential candidates to the episcopacy, uh, potential bishops, and they would send those names to the nuncio, who's the papal ambassador, and then he would look at the names and then send some to the Congregation for Bishops. They would vet these guys. And then, when a bishop is retiring, or when one dies, uh, or when they create a new new diocese, that list is is where they come from. Now, they can get input from other lay people and priests, but it's basically the bishop who recommends, and the nuncio, and then the, the cardinal prefect of the congregation of bishops. And then the pope picks one. Of them.
1: It's open line Monday with Father John Tregilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We've got open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. Next up is John, a first-time caller in Boise, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. John, you are on with Father Tregilio.
3: Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted, if I could, to dovetail a bit off the discussion earlier about the deuterocanon canon, or I would refer to it as the Apocrypha. Um, two questions. One, if, it, if, it's, if I understood you correctly, you said that it's always been canonical, mm-hmm. although it wasn't defined until Trent. If that's the case, why did Pope Gregory the Great, in his commentary on Angelo, Book 19, Chapter 34, specifically states that while it's edifying for quoting in the church and reading, it is specifically not canonical. And then number two, if that's the case, would, and then the fact that Trent anathematizes anyone who denies the two canon, doesn't that require the Catholic Church to retroactively anathematize one of her own popes?
2: Okay, no, that's that. That is a good question. Um, when the Pope was making that, that um, uh, comment, uh, he was not invoking the full weight of papal authority it was not um, an ex cathedra statement uh, he was speaking as the the chief theologian but he was not uh, imposing a teaching this was not um a a papal mandate so to speak and when we look at you know where those seven books come from the deuterocanon as we call it or in the protestant tradition they call it apocrypha uh, they're basically those books that were written in Greek during the Diaspora, uh, from 250 B.C. up to the, the modern era, and those books were only written in Greek because you know, over three-fourths of the world's Jews uh, during that time no longer spoke Hebrew. Uh, they spoke Greek. Uh, they were outside the Holy Land, and uh, Greek was the lingua franca of, of the time. And so those seven books were never written originally in Hebrew, and the Jewish community did not discount them until, uh, like I said, the Council of Jamnia, when it was a a consequence of the Temple of Jerusalem being uh, burned to the ground uh, by the Roman uh, Empire, and they were sort of regrouping and said, well, you know, it was the Christians who agitated the Romans, so we're going to go back to our ancient roots, so anything that was not Uh, originally in Hebrew, so they changed their canon uh, after Christianity had already embraced uh, those books. Now, it's true, the the definitive statement was not until the Council of Florence, but we have, um, you know, like Pope Damasus um, recognizing that, uh, those books. So Trent made it once and for all clear, only because it was Martin Luther who disputed it. Uh, Had Martin Luther not you know who's to say that uh, you know it was it would not have been part of Trent. Trent was a re- response to uh, what Martin Luther, Swingley, Hus, Cramner, uh, and the other other reformers were saying. So it's not that it's a clear, open and shut case that yes, this was Pope so and so on such and such a date. It didn't happen that way. It was, uh, it was they were accepted, they were used, and then only when it was in dispute. 1500 years because when we look at the Gutenberg Bible all right everyone's fa- uh, familiar with that uh, those canon books are in that uh, that bible the first one that was made on the uh, printing press
1: 833288 EWTN that's our toll free number 8332883986 uh Lamar says my stepson asked me to be the godfather of his son the baptism took place in another country, and he was not baptized Catholic. Now I'm not sure that I should have agreed to be his Godfather what <laughs> Godfather, what should I do
2: now? Uh, well, if, uh, if you are the Godfather by what we call proxy, okay you're the Godfather, and uh, we normally you know require that for a Catholic baptism, one practicing Catholic needs to be um, the godparent or sponsor and then If there's only one practicing Catholic available, then you can have a a non-Catholic Christian as what we call a Christian witness. Now, for Catholics to be godparents to Christians from other denominations, uh, it's not forbidden, it's not, canon law doesn't uh, say it can't happen, but your role is to be uh, an example of Christian living as a Catholic Christian, and you're not there to raise the child in the faith That's mom and dad's job. But uh, part of the role of the godparent, uh, a lot of times people think, oh, that's who takes care of him if, God forbid, something happens to mom or dad. That's a legal, uh, civil matter, who has custody over the child if something happens to the parents. Spiritually speaking, the godparents, uh, who are the sponsors for baptism, are there to pray for that child every day of their life, every day of your life, Ah, uh, you need to pray for your Godchildren, and you are to give good Christian witness. And if they come to you with spiritual questions, you're to give answer. okay? Now, because you've got a Godchild who's not Catholic, you know you're not necessarily there to uh, try to um, pr- pressure them, but I would certainly say you're there to also invite, and if you give a good example and if you make suggestions or invitations, they may come into the Catholic faith because they had such a great Godfather.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. So he shouldn't make his stepson an offer he couldn't refuse.
2: (laughs) Well, if he's Italian,
1: yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Billy writes in, where did holy water come from and is
2: it a sin to drink it? Uh, I would say don't drink it because you might get dysentery. (laughs) Um, It's not designed for for. Uh, potable use, okay, I, I don't get to use that word too often, but uh, it's not designed for drinking. Now, that doesn't mean it's a sacrilege if you do drink uh, holy water, but holy water has been out for a while. Um, we're talking about chronological time. Uh, if there, It's made the old-fashioned way. There's salt uh, in there, and uh, you don't know how long it's been in the vat. Um, I know some people even drink Lord's water. Um, it's Again, it's not Um, irreverent or sacrilegious to consume it, but we advise people it's better to use it externally. That's the purpose of holy water, is to bless yourself, bless your home. Priests and deacons and bishops use it to bless objects, um, but you don't have to consume it to get the full advantage of it. Uh, You can sprinkle it, uh, you can bless yourself with it, um, but I know sometimes I've seen people take a swig, I say to them, Bill, be careful because You know, it's holy water, but that doesn't mean if there's microbes in it, (laughs) they're not going to do their job.
1: (laughs) Still have some open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Susan is a first-time caller in Tallahassee, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Susan, you're on with Father Tregilio. Hi. I'm just
3: uh, wondering if... uh, a ministry I'm part of is interpreting the Matthew passage right that talks about binding and loosing. Um, I'm part of a covenant marriage ministry um, that uh, interprets that as like binding ungodly spirits in someone and loosing godly spirits and godly qualities in someone. I'm a recent convert to Catholicism, and I just wondered if the Catholic Church interprets that passage that way.
2: Well, it certainly is 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 a valid uh, option to use it that way because it's not restricted only to uh, canonical or jurisdictional authority. Obviously, that's where the Church uh, gets the the idea, the concept, the theology of what we call the Petrine ministry and the, the primacy of, of the Bishop of Rome uh, from um, uh, Matthew 16, that uh, you, are the, you are Peter upon this rock, I'll build my church. I entrust you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bound on earth is bound in heaven, and so forth. But it's also spiritual, because that we say it's the basis for papal infallibility. So it's not just jurisdictional uh, authority, but it's also the supreme teaching authority that the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra on matters of faith and morals. And the Pope also has to uh, be the one who convenes and approves uh, those things that are uh, issued by an ecumenical council. But the loosening and binding, as you say, is not limited to jurisdiction or to infallible teaching. There's also uh, the fact that the Pope assigns bishops, he can remove them, uh, he can create new sacramentals, not sacraments, we're... We have seven that came directly from Jesus Christ, but sacramentals, like holy water and and rosaries and scapulars for the canonization of saints. That's all uh, papal uh, powers as well. And the binding and loosening, uh, the Pope can also share that. So obviously when uh, a priest performs an exorcism, he must, for it to be uh, valid and effective, he must have the authority uh, granted to him from the local bishop. Uh, Priests are not advised to do it on their own, uh, because we need the, the backing, spiritually, of the authority of the uh, successors of the apostles and the successor of St. Peter. Now, by extension, also, uh, you know, when you're praying for deliverance from evil spirits, again it's this idea that it's the Church. The Church has that authority, that power, to uh, loose and bind. And I, as a member of the Church, because of the—remember, there's a priesthood of the, of the baptized, which is distinct and different from the priesthood of the ministerial priesthood, those who are ordained. But because of baptism, you do uh, share in that to an extent.
1: God bless you, Susan. Welcome to the Catholic Church. Mark is a first-time caller in Fresno, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mark, you're on with Father Tregilio.
3: Oh, hello. Good, good afternoon. Right. Um my question was concerning um convalidation uh which i'm awaiting uh, at this time. I'm I'm returning to the faith by the way. And Thank you. Wonderful. uh and yes. But I'm just uh, obviously just getting started uh to have my marriage convalidated. But in the interim am i allowed to to go to reconciliation is uh, i i I heard something on another show and it called that into question. I know I can't receive the, the Eucharist, but other sacraments
2: uh, were I was unclear about. Yeah, yeah. So can I can I go to reconciliation in this before the marriage is convalidated? Well you you, you could and you should uh the day or night before you have the convalidation. Uh and, and if in danger of death and preclomortis, uh if you're gonna have surgery and you need to be anointed, uh you, you There's great latitude given to the priest uh, when he's administering the sacraments uh, to people in danger of death. And as a hospital chaplain, I I anointed everybody uh, in ICU, uh, anytime you're under general anesthesia or have any uh, serious illness. Um, But if all things being equal, if you're in good health, um, it's good for you not to, to, or you should postpone receiving the sacrament because once you receive the sacrament, then you cannot uh, continue something that would be um, improper. So, uh, if you're living with your legal wife, and you know uh, you're living hu- as husband and wife, um, you know we, the church would not want to put you in a position where now you have to say, "Well, we're we're going to have to abstain. We're going to have to, you know, you, we don't want people moving out of the house, especially if they got children." Um, so it, that's why it puts you in a predicament because if you're invalidly married, you can't receive Holy Communion the benefit of going to the sacrament of confession uh, is sort of frustrated. So uh, the Church understands that. Uh, We understand that. We don't want to think that you're you're not worthy of receiving God's forgiveness. But until all these things are all put into place, it's the same as if somebody was excommunicated. Certainly they can have that lifted. They can be reconciled. But we want to do all of it as best as possible around the same time.
1: God bless you, Mark. We'll keep you and your situation in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Uh, Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. If you heard an answer today on today's program that uh, you want to Kind of fill in the blanks on. You can check out our encore tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern. Open line encores every night, Monday through Friday, 10 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Vanessa writes in, and uh, exactly what she's asking is a little ambiguous because her punctuation is ambiguous.
2: <laughs> oh, no Oxford comma.
1: <laughs> is it Yeah. Is it true that the Catholic Church split away from the Orthodox Church, which was the original church? <laughs> so I don't know if she is suggesting that the Orthodox Church is the original church, or if she's asking which one was the original okay. church. Okay. But you can just give her the whole spiel no matter what.
2: <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, From our perspective, and what we think is definitely the definitive uh, um, answer to the question, is that in the the schism of 1054, when the the Orthodox Church broke from uh, the Church of Rome, they split from us. Um, The Pope is the Bishop of Rome, and there's been an unbroken line of of bishops of Rome from St. Peter, who was the first, all the way now to pope francis the patriarchs of constantinople the patriarch of uh, moscow and all the other patriarchs while there were some patriarchs in ancient times uh, right in jerusalem in antioch alexandria constantinople didn't exist for like for 300 years okay it wasn't until constantine established the city of constantinople so for 300 years you, you had nobody as the head of the church except the bishop of Rome because he was successor of St. Peter. So uh, Jesus said, I will build my church on the rock of Peter. And he didn't say on the rock of, of Constantinople or on the rock of Moscow uh, or even Alexandria or Antioch. So when you look at the history of it and seeing that, you know, these other patriarchates did not exist until later, they did not have the, the direct lineage To the one that jesus gave the full authority uh, to peter not to the other apostles now they shared in being apostles and the college of bishops but the papacy the pope the bishop of rome the roman pontiff he's the one that's the head of the church and although they have the same valid seven sacraments that we have in the in the catholic church the eastern orthodox church uh, where they part from us is they do not accept uh, not only papal infallibility but also papal primacy They see the Pope as the first among equals. But 1054, when the Great Schism took place, uh, it was the Eastern Orthodox who broke from uh, the Catholic uh, communion. It wasn't vice versa.
1: Uh, Paul is in Saginaw, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Paul, welcome to the program.
3: Good afternoon, gentlemen, on this hot summer afternoon (laughs) day. How hot is it down there?
1: You know, we've got a bit of a break here in Birmingham today. It's only about 86. It was upper 90s most of last week, so we're not going to complain
3: here. I don't know what it is. Well, it's 80, 89 here, and it's going to be 90 the next two days.
1: Oh, goodness gracious. What's your question today, yeah. Paul?
3: Yeah, my question is this. Uh, in the book of Revelation, Chapter 7, why is the tribe of Dan not listed with the other tribes, and why is the girl Dinah or Dina, who was the only girl not listed with the tribes? And why is Manassas listed with those 12 tribes?
2: Okay. Um That one I have to tell you, I have no Come idea. Come on, Rabbi, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, all he can say is what St. Augustine said. Uh, when we're reading Scripture and we notice any alleged inconsistencies or alleged um, um discrepancies, rather than jumping to the conclusion that it's the text that's wrong, he said it's better to say it's our interpretation that's off. Because sacred scripture, all of sacred scripture, and certainly in the book of Revelation, that it's inspired text, the Holy Spirit inspired. So it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's revealed. Every single word and every single book, uh, all uh, 72 books of of, of the Bible. So when we're reading that and we see, oh, look, this doesn't, uh, just with this one here, uh, again, rather than saying, aha, there's an error, no. The error isn't in the text. The error is in our interpretation of that text. So if there's names that are missing, if, uh, you know, there's, like, sometimes scripture scholars will point out, oh, well, this town really wasn't there yet, or it was named something else, again, uh, we we cannot use the same rules of secular or uh, civilian um, literature on sacred scripture, because God is the ultimate author, and God is, you know, all truth. So, I would have to say that's a well above my pay grade. I wouldn't be able to answer that. <laughs> Uh,
1: so Paul here's what I'm here's what I'm going to do
2: for you Paul I
1: don't know if you have the ability to listen on Wednesday to EWTN's open line but we are going to pose that very question to Father Mitch Pacwa at the beginning of the show on Wednesday and if anybody can answer it I think it would be him how does that sound Paul?
3: I will be listening for sure.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for the phone call. We appreciate it. Next stop for us is Pensacola, Florida. Brenda's listening on Guadalupe Radio. Brenda, you're on with Father Tregilio.
3: Hi, how are you? Fine. I
2: seem to have an
3: echo
1: on my phone. Yeah, well, go ahead and fight through it, Brenda. Just ask your question. My
3: question is, my mother is 86 years old. And she recently married a man who was 90. My mother is Baptist. The man is born and raised Catholic. He, um, when he first told me he was going to marry my mom, I said, how will that work to so choose Baptist and you're Catholic? He said, there's ways to get around it. So what happened was it was a pretend wedding, that my mom thought it was real. And when I pointed out to her that was not a marriage license that she had, it was just a certificate, confronted him, and then they got married. So when he told his church that he was married to her and he's going up, you know, for Communion on Sundays, they kind of told him they shouldn't be doing that, and he went and found another church. So him and my mom are going to this other church, and they're going to this other church now and um, getting communion and pretending like they're living this perfect Catholic life, because she's still going to the Baptist Church. I'm really disturbed by it, because as a Catholic I know she's doing is very wrong, and I know what he's doing is very wrong. And I don't like it.
1: Well, Father, if if the situation is exactly how she describes it, Mm -hmm. then she shouldn't like it. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely.
2: Now, the sad thing is, this could have been avoided or prevented, uh, possibly or probably, because uh, you can get a dispensation from the bishop to get married in a non-Catholic church by a non-Catholic minister in a non-Catholic rite. Um, The bishop can uh, dispense you from what we call canonical form. Um, Also, couples who are married invalidly, as our previous caller, you can have your marriage convalidated, or sometimes it's called having your marriage blessed, but that's not an accurate... Uh, way of describing it so this marriage could have been convalidated it could have been valid from the very beginning but if they're going to another church where they're given communion um, I don't know if that's um, a Catholic or a, a non-denominational church or whatever it is but um, if it's Catholic you know he shouldn't be receiving communion and if her mother is invalidly married she shouldn't receive be seen receiving communion but
1: or if she's not Catholic
2: that's right but I would say um, if her mom and legal stepfather uh, were interested, talk to the local uh, parish priest or deacon because there may be a way of rectifying this. But in the meantime, okay, it's, it's your mother, uh, you love her, um, but you don't want to condone you know, going against uh, Holy Mother Church. So certainly um, you, know, you want to convey to her that you're not happy about it. But I wouldn't cut off ties with her and say, I'm not speaking to you anymore. Uh, But I would also express that you are disappointed and say, would you please, you know, do this at least, talk to a priest to see what can be done. I mean, all you can do is say no. But I think maybe offering that, because maybe they think it's a shut door, and it may not be.
1: God bless you, Brenda. We'll keep you in our prayers. Greg would like to know, does the part of the Lord's Prayer, if it says, give us this day our daily bread, refer to us receiving the Eucharist daily?
2: Uh, it could. I mean, a lot of uh, spiritual writers have said that, but obviously it's not a mandate that everyone must receive communion uh, every day. In fact, um, you know, in, in many times during church history there were periods where people uh, weren't receiving that often, and that's why the church made a, a precept that you had at least received once uh, during the Easter season. People were going so infrequently. Now we've got the opposite, where people are going that they should uh, maybe uh, go to confession first because they got mortal sin, or maybe they're in an invalid marriage and they need to get that uh, rectified. Uh, Canonically, uh, canon law makes it clear you can only receive the maximum of twice a day. But the daily bread uh, can refer to the fact that we have the Catholic Church does have daily Mass, in which there is Holy Communion is, is available. But um, our daily bread can also be, you know, uh, the Word of Scripture, uh, what the, the, the revelation of God's love for us can also be part of that daily bread. So daily bread is not uh, exclusively, all right, it's first off referring to Holy Eucharist, but it can also refer to all the other things that God provides for us.
1: And Mary, in the great state of Missouri, we are flat out of time. My apologies if you will call back on another program. We would be happy to try to get to your question. And Father, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: Absolutely. Benedica Vos only Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen.
1: Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our celebrity social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay, today, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.